I hope one doesn't get lost in, in, in the whole narrative is that in my experience, more than anything, I think perseverance is probably what counts the most. You know, the stories about how much money we've raised are very well told. Uh, you know, you can Google that and, and see, you know, 100 million here and 30 million there, whatever. But I think what the story that isn't told is the considerable walls that I run into and the number of rejections that I got, you know, very early on trying to raise money for the company. Ever imagine you could be mentored and guided by some of the most influential leaders in business? That's where 40 Minute Mentor comes in. I'm passionate about making business mentorship accessible to everyone. So whether you're just beginning your career or you're looking for advice in taking the leap and starting a new venture, or perhaps you're scaling a rocket ship, this show is designed to cover everything from the ground up in the next 40 minutes. In today's 40 Minute Mental episode, I speak to Ham Serenjoji, co-founder and CEO of Chipper Cash, our sponsors for this series. Chipper Cash provide a borderless way to send and receive money from the UK to Africa, across the continent and beyond. It's widely considered to be Africa's most valuable startup and the team are on an amazing journey, having launched across eight countries so far with many more still to come. In today's episode, Ham and I explore his journey of scaling Chipper Cash and hear his learnings along the way. We cover hiring, the benefits of having a great co-founder and mentors, and we hear his top tips when it comes to fundraising. And he really knows a thing or two about that, having raised $150 million in capital, including from Amazon's founder, Jeff Bezos. I love talking to Ham. He's driven, he's passionate, and above all, incredibly humble, despite all the success he's had at such a young age. I know you'll love today's episode and we'll learn tons from Ham, who is truly building a mission-driven rocket ship. So please make sure you check out Chipper Cash at chippercash.com and their upcoming event, Unlocking Global Opportunities, on September the 30th. Now, with all that said, please sit back, relax, and tune into this episode with a phenomenal Ham Serenjoji. Ham, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. It's wonderful to have you here today. James, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm excited to be a part of your uh, your show and your podcast today, and uh, I'm looking forward to a, an engaging conversation. Awesome, me too. Well, well, let's get into it. We always like to start the 40 Minute Mentor with some quick-fire questions uh, so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So if you don't mind, please finish these sentences after me. First one, when I was younger, I always wanted to be... A bus driver. Oh, that's a good one. That is a good one. Very sociable and noble. <laughs> My first job was... I had, I guess, two first jobs. My first job was technically working with my mom and my dad. They're both self-employed and uh, they, were, they they had a farm, so we worked on the farm. But I guess my first real job in terms of getting a paycheck and working in a corporate setting was at a plastics factory that my aunt used to run. And that was in high school. Interesting. When starting my career, I wish I'd known? I wish I'd known the importance of having a strong network. Um, more than anything, the people around you guide and dictate, you know, how far and how fast you can progress in your career, almost more than any single other thing. So having a strong group of people around you that uh, will support, um, advise, 
course correct is, is very important. I love that one. And mentor, of course, which is very apt for, uh, for this conversation. I'm most energized at work when I'm... When I'm working directly on the product. That's probably one of the most exciting things. Building something that gets to be used by millions of people is uniquely rewarding. And um, that's an aspect of my job that I sort of do less and less as the company gets bigger and bigger, just because there's more people that walk on that piece. And then I have to sort of spend my time on other aspects of the business, which are equally as important. But it's it's very fun working on, on the product directly. Spoken like a true founder. <laughs> I love that. And, and we're, we're going to come on to talk a bit about uh, chippers. But, uh, it's the best I can do. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's great. It's great. I love it. And finally, can you share something we couldn't learn from your CV, whether that's a perceived failure or a setback in your career that you've learned from? I'd say the importance of appreciating delayed gratification I used to be a swimmer, swam competitively, and swimming in many ways shaped who I was as a human being and as a child growing up. But one of the key lessons I learned from that was you walk intensely and <clears throat> you obsess over achieving a goal. You walk at it every day. You make sacrifices every day. And those results show up over a period of time. So the discipline to stay committed to what you're doing is important in anything you do in life. And so learning that sometimes results take a while to show up is very important and swimming taught me that lesson. So, you know, appreciating delayed gratification is, is something that probably doesn't show up on a CV, but uh, I would say is a lesson I learned from just growing up as a swimmer. That's a great one. That's something I think we can all all, all learn from. And, and it's the perfect segue into the first part of our chat. I'm really keen to just dig into your upbringing a little bit because i know you were born in in uganda where my, my actually my mother-in-law was born in kampala oh, so really? it's, a, it's a country I, yeah i have uh, links to and, and and great fondness for and as you mentioned you were a um, competitive swimmer at a very young age and i think i read that you'd even competed at the youth olympics which is a first for this podcast so uh kudos to you for that do you think that work ethic and resilience that you've shown throughout your career to date stems from that those early years and that I guess that sporting experience you had at the start of your life I think definitely played a massive role in building that work I think I mean as a child I didn't enjoy you know having to practice every day and and miss birthday parties and things that other kids wanted to do but it was building a muscle that I rely on heavily in life as I grew older um, and, and I appreciate my parents for you know, putting me through that and make sure that I stuck with it. I think for me, the idea that um, I had to commit to an important goal uh, was something that shaped how I viewed my life going forward. I'd say, you know, that and the combination of watching my parents run their own businesses and sort of have to figure out every day you know, how they make ends meet. Those are vital lessons that I had the privilege of sort of learning at a very early age um, and that I wouldn't trade for anything and that have worked out well in terms of preparing me for, you know, this very difficult and, you know, unpredictable thing that we call life. Yeah, yeah, that, that, and it's really interesting that your, your parents were self-employed because I guess you 
it can go one of two ways, can't it? You can see how painful and challenging entrepreneurial life can be and and I never want to go near it, but you've gone the opposite way. You've followed in their footsteps. So do you think that, was that always your destiny, do you think, to to be your your, your own boss? I think I always appreciated the unique, I'd say the unique lifestyle of sort of solving problems every day and important problems, you know, they don't have to be big, but the idea that, you know, you wake up today and you have, you know, a different set of challenges than you had yesterday. That really is the story of entrepreneurship, right? It's 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 a very unpredictable journey. And watching my parents do that and, you know, do it in, in different ways because they had different businesses all day, it sort of left a mark on me as a child. I think that appealed more to me than having a more structured lifestyle, which most of my friends who at school had parents that went corporate jobs would have. So I think it appealed to me greatly because of that aspect. But then also, I, I like the ability to be able to sort of control how I'm thinking about spending my time on different things. And, and that's something that entrepreneurship really allows you to do, which is you sort of get to decide what's the most important thing I need to spend my time on today. Uh, and, and, and you spend your time on that thing. So I always wanted to sort of, you know, dive into issues that I thought were important and and few things that you do that as well as just, you know, going out and doing your own thing. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. And I guess you, you kind of had that early inspiration and then you won a scholarship to uh, study economics at Grinnell College in the US and then started your career at Facebook. And I've I've read that that job hunt was a little unorthodox with a, a direct email to Sheryl Sandberg, which is uh, is quite punchy, but I really, I love, I love that story. Can you tell our listeners a bit about how you ended up at Facebook and what were some of the highlights and lessons from your time there? Yeah, absolutely. This is interesting because you're, you're really taking me back here. You know, Youth Olympic Games, Facebook internships, it's, it's, it's all many, many years ago, but it's nice to sort of just reflect on it. But yeah, I think what you're referring to is, uh, is, is, is that particular Facebook application where I was actually in my junior year of college and I was in San Francisco that winter with my co-founder, Majid. He, he had graduated a year before and uh, I'd come out here to the barrier to just sort of be in the tech scene and see what was happening and try to see if I could find something to do over the summer. And um, internship applications are very, very rigorous and, and sometimes painful because you sort of get a lot of rejections and the few yeses you get are not the ones you really want. So it's just like a very painful process. So I, I sort of said, well, let me just try something that I haven't done yet, which is seek out something that I want and go directly to the source, so to speak. And, and I figured Facebook was a company that was receiving, you know, like something like 40,000 applications every every summer. So I had to do something that would make me stand out if I, if I wanted to give myself a chance because I, I didn't think my resume on paper was anything to sort of write home about. So I didn't think on its own it, it would do the job for me. And so I just he told my, uh, my co-founder, I, said, I told Major at the time, I said, hey, I'm just going to email Cheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg and ask them for an internship. And uh, I spent about half an hour or so trying to, to essentially backwards engineer what the emails might be based on their Facebook usernames and a bunch of other things. <laughs> and eventually I got to something that worked. Yeah. So I, I shook them both an email and I said, Hey guys, you know, I'm, I'm looking to apply for an internship at Facebook and I'd appreciate your help. And it was one of those things I was like, this will never work, you know? So I'm already at zero. I, I'm not, so, 
Yeah, and you know, and Cheryl responded back, and she connected me to the team in New York that I interviewed with, and and, and I got the job, and uh, that's sort of how my my path to Facebook um, came to be. Uh, and ever since then, you know, I've, I've always told her that she probably doesn't know, but that was a massive inflection point in my life and career because going to Facebook opened up a bunch of other opportunities for me. Uh, and it's it's safe to say that I probably wouldn't be on the path I am today if I hadn't done that internship and got that experience. So I'm, I'm deeply grateful to her for, you know, not uh, sending my email to, to spam <laughs> when she got it. <laughs> I guess I guess on that, there's going to be people listening to this that are in college or university and, and, and they're thinking about what the best first step in their career is. What do you think are the benefits of going to a big tech company like a Facebook? What are some of the things that you learn in that time that's helped you in your subsequent career as a founder? So I have a couple of answers to that. But before I answer that, I'd actually like to sort of, go to sort of go back to a question you asked earlier about things on my resume that may not show up that are lessons that I learned. And as I was giving the last answer about my Facebook application and internship, I, I sort of remembered a point I wanted to make, which is one thing that I learned from just watching my parents growing up is that the thing about life in general, I think, is that there's a non-linear path to sort of getting to what you want to achieve. And part of why I say this now is because when I was sort of emailing Cheryl to ask for an internship, that was sort of me leaning on that side of me that appreciated that sometimes to get to where you want to go, you have to sort of go a different route than what is expected or what is the bitten path. And, you know, the expected path is go online, fill out an application and apply. The unexpected path is to go to the, you know, the CEO or the CEO and, and email them directly. But, you know, the thing about entrepreneurship and sort of small businesses and watching people solve problems every day is that every day you're having to take nonlinear paths to sort of stay alive, solve key problems in the business. Um, and, and I guess seeing my parents do that very early on allowed me to appreciate the value of that. Uh, and I've used that several times in my in my career, even beyond that point, that, that have been very helpful. And, and that's a very key lesson that I think would help m- more people if they appreciated it and, and, and applied it in, in different scenarios. So just wanted to say that. But to your other question about um, the, the lessons learned in working at a big company, there's definitely very many. And, and, and part of why I, I specifically wanted to go to Facebook was at that time, and in many ways it's still, today it's still very fast growing, but at that time it was very, very fast growing. This was 2014. I think it had probably less than 7,000 employees. Today it might have over 50,000, I think. And so at that time, I wanted to be at a large company that was growing very fast and solving very difficult technical problems. And I figured that seeing how people in that organization run that organization would be helpful to me one day if I really want to do something on my own. And, you know, you, you learn things around how do you, you know, bring a group of people together to solve a common problem? How do you keep them incentivized to solve that difficult problem? You know, how do you communicate important you know, values, company missions, company visions, you know, across an organization and have that be clearly articulated? How do you, you know, instill a culture and a sense of company values that everyone subscribes to and, and wants to be a part of and protect? All those things are very important lessons that you can learn at, at, at large established companies. And that can be very, very important to anyone, not just if you want to start your own company, but just if you want to grow 
personally and professionally. You can apply a, a ton of those lessons in, in, in many interesting ways. So going to Facebook was in many ways me trying to sort of see how those things are done, uh, especially, you know, in the tech ecosystem today uh, or at that, at that time, which is booming and growing very, very fast. Brilliant. And that's a great education, I guess. And it's, it, it obviously set you up for success, you know, and you've gone on to achieve huge amounts of chipper cash. And that's what I'd love to talk about next. It's been described as one of Africa's most valuable startups. But what I love about you, Ham, and what you've said is that the value of the company isn't your focus, but it's all about the impact on your customers, which is, is such a great mantra. Word has it that you came up with the idea of Chipper Cash on a road trip down Highway 1 with your co-founder, which is, a, is an interesting story. So tell, tell our listeners a bit about how you got started, where, where the idea came from, and, and what were those kind of very early stages like? What were some of the highlights for you from that period? Again, as an odd to this, uh, to, to this podcast, 40-Minute Mentor, Majid was very much a mentor of mine in college. He was two years older than me, so when I joined, he was a junior and as a, as a, as a, as a freshman. And he, in many ways, took me under his wing. He showed me around uh, the college and uh, got me into the tech scene at Grinnell. Uh, and he and I were very aligned in, in, in the idea that we had grown up in Africa. We sort of had the exposure, the unique insights you get from growing up in a place and knowing the problems people in that place face. And then we had also had the privilege of coming to America to be educated and, 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 and to work as well. And we sort of were aligned in the sense that we need to do something with both those sort of skills or, or experiences. How do you marry what you've learned growing up with what you've been exposed to today to build something impactful? And so when I graduated in 2016, um, I came out to the barrier again for a few months before I left the U.S. because I had to leave the U.S. after I graduated for visa purposes. But before I left, I came out to the barrier. Uh, Major was here as well. Um, he was also about to leave the U.S. for similar purposes. Uh, and we sort of said, you know, before we head out, let's just go on this road trip to L.A. It was actually a friend of ours idea who is now our chief legal officer, a gentleman named Mark. He sort of said, why don't you guys just take a road trip and, you know, uh, think about what you guys want to do. And we, I love that. It's so American, that, isn't it? I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he lent us his, uh, his, his, Ford, his Ford Focus and we drove along the one. And uh, we just spent that entire road trip just listening to different podcasts mostly about, you know, what's happening in the fintech space or the cryptocurrency space. One of the developments there that have sort of enabled new uh, innovations today. And it was on that road trip that we decided that, all right, the thing that we think is most important for us to spend our time on is to tackle the cross-border space within Africa. Uh, and at that time, the focus around payments vis-a-vis -vis Africa was almost purely around remittances, so people sending money into the continent. Uh, no one had really sort of addressed money moving within the continent. And it became clear to us that there were a set of technologies that were available to us now that coupled with our own innovations and problem-solving processes we could apply to to try and tackle this problem. And, you know, part of us wanting to do this because we'd faced it ourselves firsthand growing up, you know, me and my own experiences in Uganda, majored with his experiences in Ghana. So we, it, it was very close to home as a problem to solve, and we felt it was important enough. You know, when, when I talk about the value of what we do being its impact, it's really because we wanted this to be something that we ourselves and our families could benefit from in terms of using something that allows them to send money easily across borders. We knew that there was 
another 1 billion people that wanted the same thing. But in many ways, you know, most founders or people who built great businesses typically build products that they themselves want to use. And in this case, it was the same. And I mean, we weren't fooled on about how difficult it would be. It's still very difficult. But we just felt it was important enough to, to take a stab at it and, and see how far we could go with it. So, you know, that still remains true today. We still feel very excited about that problem and, and, and trying to, to contribute to it meaningfully. That's awesome. Before we continue our conversation with Ham, I wanted to share another podcast recommendation with you. If you're a 40-Minute Mental fan, I know you'll really enjoy the 929 podcast. Each week, it brings you a wealth of knowledge from inspiring guests in both business and creative fields, all in exactly 9 minutes and 29 seconds. The latest bite-sized episode features entrepreneur and TV host Paul Carrick Brunson. To find out more, just search 929 and hit the follow button. And Chibakash has grown exponentially over the last three years. And I guess uh, despite the, uh, all the plaudits and success, I, I know as a uh, founder of a much smaller business, it does bring lots and lots of challenges that are very hard to prepare for in, in terms of university and life. So what have been the biggest challenges you've had to face uh, when you've been on this scaling journey and how have you overcome them? Yeah, I don't know if I have enough time to answer all, all those challenges. But, uh, <laughs> Give me your biggest one, maybe. <laughs> startups are essentially a series of multiple fires that you have to put out every day, <laughs> if I could sort of describe it in one sentence. And sort of therein lies the challenge of the challenges, which is every day you're sort of deciding what's the biggest thing that's breaking that I need to solve, being fully aware that there's other things that are broken that you can't solve that day. <laughs> So you solve the biggest one. And, you know, it ranges from, you know, at the very early stage, it's just a question of, you know, are we going to be alive to see the next day? Can we survive? Uh, you know, and then obviously there's the issue of, all right, you know, is our product built in such a way that people actually want to use it? Because, you know, you can build a product that you think is nice for yourself, but no one else wants to use it. So it's sort of dead on arrival. And then if you're able to get past that point, then it's a question of, all right, can we bring on the right people to actually help us scale this thing? And then, you know, do we have the resources to actually bring on those people and compensate them because, you know, they're very talented and they can be anywhere else they want to be. So how do you make them come to your thing? So, you know, you have to sort of not only, you know, be a salesperson to your customers, you have to be a salesperson to your employees, you have to be a salesperson to your investors and, and to pretty much everyone else who you need to, to do what you're doing. Uh, and the younger you are, the more difficult each of those sales pitches are because you really, all you're selling is a vision more than anything, there's no traction, there's no product, there's no, tr you know, track record of, of success. As you grow, you start to get some of the traction, you start to show that there's something here so people can, you know, subscribe to that easier, but you're still having to sell that vision. And then on a more practical level, you know, the challenges every day that you face are something somewhere is going to happen that will set you back significantly. It might be an employee makes a mistake and, you know, does something that just creates a massive uh, fire internally that has to be put out and it's going to be costly or uh, something that is out of your control that happens in a country that is important to your business and you can't control that, but that sets back your operations there significantly. Or, in, you know, some of the in cases for me that I, I think I'm, I, I like to be very open about is mistakes that I've made. And, you know, sometimes I've hired the wrong people for important roles and it's taken, you know, me time to appreciate, okay, this is the wrong person in that role and we need to either 
you know, have a difficult discussion and get them out of that role. Uh, hopefully find them another role in the company, or if not, just, you know, part ways with them. Uh, and those are very uncomfortable discussions, but they have to be had. And uh, making those mistakes is inevitable. It's about sort of how you learn from them and make less of them going forward. But each of those things is very costly to a young company. If you hire someone very important in a bad, if you mishire someone very important in an important role, the cost of that to the business can be massive because it sets you back not just in real time, but also in the future in terms of how long it takes to first come back to course correct and then sort of make up for the lost time and resources. Uh, and so, you know, there's a multitude of things that just make growing a young company very, very difficult. And, you know, in that whole process, you have to sort of maintain your sanity as, as the founders. It is, you know, we try. We, I tell the startup players all the time, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, we want to do this for the long term. So, you know, you don't want to burn out. And that applies to us as well. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's uniquely interesting. It's uniquely difficult, but it's also uniquely rewarding when you start to see the impact that it has. Uh, and, and when you sort of appreciate how many startups fail, to be in the category of companies that have been able to get past some milestones, you take that very, very seriously. And, and you appreciate being able to see those milestones and, and the impact your, your company has on, on, on its customers and also on its employees. And so those things are uniquely rewarding and, and make it all worth it. But ultimately, you know, what really keeps us going and what makes us work tirelessly on, on what we're building is, is the impact it has on our customers. That's why I always say that it's not so much to us about, you know, how much our company is worth or if we've raised, you know, $200 million or, or, or whatever. If it was just about those things, you know, we would have quit already because, you know, we've done those things. It's, it's not just about that financial success. It's, it's, it's really about that real human impact that um, uh, the business has on people who rely on it every day. Uh, and that's something that is constantly uh, having to be achieved and maintained, right? You, you can achieve something and lose it. Achieving and maintaining is, is a different, it requires a different set of, of, of you know, skills and, and people and, and, and perseverance. Yeah, I love that. There's a couple of things I just wanted to touch on there. One is around maintaining your sanity. I think um, the world has become much more in tune to, you know, the importance of mental health and well-being and, and, and founder burnout has definitely been on the rise, especially in the pandemic. How have you managed to strike some form of balance or, 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 or ensure you don't burn out when you're, you know, you're going at 100 miles an hour 24-7? How, how, how do you balance life? And, and how have you been able to ensure you can enjoy the journey and those big wins and those milestones that you've hit along the way? I think the first thing, the most, the, the nucleus of just maintaining your sanity is, I think, having a strong group of people around you. And that starts with Majin, my co-founder. He and I work very well together that regardless of how difficult things will get or have gotten, we're able to support each other through it. And that's very important. Anyone else in that situation, I probably would have not come this far. So, and then that extends towards, you know, my leadership team and the people who I, I, I work with daily. Uh, are those are a group of people that, you know, will get in the gutter and roll their sleeves up. And when things get tough, we'll dig in. Because that also makes a big difference. But to go back to sort of the the nexus of your question, I think the discussion around 
founder burnout, I think is very closely aligned to the discussion around mental health that I think more and more people are starting to have today. Um, I mean, we saw it in the Olympics, you know, with with uh, Simone Biles and a number of athletes who are prioritizing that piece of their well-being, um, and uh, rightly so, uh, and also by extension, who are encouraging the the world to have a discussion around these topics. I think it's similar in 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 the in the founder or the entrepreneurship space as well. I know lots of people who put their mental well-being, their emotional well-being on the line for their companies because they believe so deeply in something. And it's incredibly difficult. Um, you know, in some of the most trying times we've had at Chipper, I felt like I've reached the limits of my emotional capacity or my or my mental capacity. And having someone like Major to be alongside that journey with me has helped because we're able to sort of support each other through those 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 periods. But there's people who might not have that resource or, or who things might be going very differently. But that is a very, very important aspect of, of any company's success. If the founders are not able to, to, to do it in a sustainable manner, the company can only go so far. And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to how well are you supporting yourself with the people around you. And, and ultimately, you know, as a company grows, being disciplined to actually, you know, budget your time even more strictly. One of the things that Cheryl at Facebook used to say all the time is the power of ruthless prioritization, which is you might have a hundred things that are all high priority, but in those hundred, you need to be able to find 10 that are the most important, right? They might all feel like they are as important, but there are 10 that are even more important. And the same thing applies to time. As a, as a founder, your time is split in so many different ways because everything requires your attention. But being able to have the discipline to say, this is what I want to focus on right now and delegate the rest is very important. And as a company grows, you have those resources available to you. You have people that can help you manage your time. You have people you can delegate things to. And being willing to do that delegation, to do that time management, to be disciplined about it is important. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of founders sometimes struggle with that because your company is your baby. You want to be involved with every single part of it. Um, and letting go can be difficult as it scales. But you have to you have to learn to do it. You know, we're we're now almost I think over two hundred employees and we're growing very fast. So, you know, being able to have the resources to delegate and have more people handle other parts of the business that I don't have to worry about every day is part of, of, of just me being able to to do this in a sustainable manner. Oh, thank you for your candor. I think there's so many important things you said there and some great advice for others listening. Um, and I think it's really important for founders to to talk about mental health and well-being and to, you know, it, it shows what a strong bond you have with your co-founder and how important that that relationship is. Yeah. Uh, so thank, you, thank you for sharing. No, absolutely. And thank you for asking. It's definitely something that we don't like to talk about at all. I mean, people, I think, to no fault of anyone's, but I think people like stories of, you know, immense pain and sacrifice that leads to success. But there's very many stories of immense pain and sacrifice that leads to not as much success or no success at all. And those stories we, we, we seldom hear about, but uh, I think are just as important to, to appreciate uh, uh, and to tell. So I think there's lots of founders out there who I know of personally and uh, I've seen that don't get to grow their companies as much as others or don't get to raise the money that they need to raise but are sacrificing just as much personally. So it's a very, it's a very tough and then very uh, lonely journey in many ways. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And to be honest with you, it resonates with myself as a, as a solo founder who has burnt out at times and, and, and suffered with anxiety. It, it, it's challenging and it is lonely. And I think that the point you made, and I've, I've thankfully managed to surround myself with brilliant board advisors and you know some fantastic uh, senior leaders in the team over the years that, that have helped me in those those lonely times and I think we as an ecosystem need to talk more about this and make sure that support is there for, for, for those solo founders but it also says a lot for you know anyone listening to this that's thinking about setting up a business about the importance of getting the right co-founder on board if, if that's the path you choose. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Ham. I want to get on to talk about fundraising quickly because it's something that I know people listening will be interested. I know you're, you're very humble and probably won't want to talk too much about this, but you've raised a, a quite astonishing amount of money. You've got investment from Jeff Bezos' own personal VC fund, which is some serious validation for the work you're doing at Chipper Cash. I just wanted to ask because so many... This is one of the most challenging parts of of, of, of startup life is, is getting the funds in uh, to help scale. What what are some of the lessons that you've learned from your fundraising experience that you can pass on to others listening going through that process? Um, because you're clearly very, very good at it. <laughs> well, that's, that's very kind of you to say. But you know, I do count my blessings and, and, and I do acknowledge that we've been able to raise a considerable amount of money. But I think... What's most important, and I, I hope what doesn't get lost in, in, in the whole narrative, is that in my experience, more than anything, I think perseverance is probably what counts the most. You know, the stories about how much money we've raised are very well told. Uh, you know, you can Google that and, and see, you know, 100 million here and 30 million there, whatever. But I think what the story that isn't told is the considerable walls that I run into and the number of rejections that I got you know, very early on trying to raise money for the company. And I think every founder can relate to that, especially in the very early days of the company. But particularly for us, you know, Major and I are two, you know, when we started the company, we're two 24-year-old first-time, you know, African founders in Silicon Valley trying to raise money. We had no no track record of sort of, you know, ever starting a company anywhere. You know, we're young, we just out of college. Being in that sort of, situation isn't the most optimal for, for raising money. <laughs> I was going to say the, the odds are stacked against you there, aren't they? Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's many other ways you can, you, you, you can be better positioned to raise money than that. And, you know, obviously I was naive when it started because I thought it would be straightforward and, and I run into very many walls and rejections and some were less kind than others. And, you know, it, it took a toll on me and how, difficult that process was, but the fact that we just stuck through it and kept going, uh, I think more than anything is what has sort of allowed us to get to this point. You know, we believed deeply in what we wanted to do, so we were sort of going to do it no matter what. I was talking to a friend who will remain unnamed at this point, uh, but I was talking to a friend the other day and they were saying, you know, you guys are like cockroaches, you know, you just don't die. <laughs> and... Uh, and in many ways, that's kind of true, right? It's like we were so, so committed to doing this thing and seeing it through that it was going to take almost, you know, the world ending for us to give up. Um, and in that perseverance and in that stubbornness and that relentlessness to, to give in was sort of what allowed us to see the light. And by light, I mean eventually get to a point where we had investors that looked at the company seriously and wanted to invest in it. Getting that first yes, then, you know, being able to 
scale the company to the next stage and the stage after that and to where we are today. That's very important. And then obviously beyond that, there are obviously technical aspects that come into it, which is, you know, how do you, like I talked about being a salesperson to employees, you know, how are you setting the narrative and the vision of your company? If you're, if you're looking to bring investors on board and good investors, that is, how well do you sort of tell your vision to someone else that they want to be a part of your company and also uh, want to actually buy into your company and have actual ownership and, and, and exposure to, to your potential success? That's a hard story to tell. And sometimes, and then this discount the importance of being able to clearly articulate your vision. That, that's a big part of being able to attract the right people around the table, investors or advisors or otherwise. And that's a big part of being able to set the company up for success. Uh, and then obviously, you know, you learn as you go along. I'm, I'm a significantly better negotiator now than I was when I first raised our first round of money. You know, it's a learning process uh, and, and allowing yourself the, the flexibility and the leeway to, you know, to grow and improve is important. I look back at some of my initial pitch decks or emails that I sent to investors and I cringe. I'm like, oh my goodness, I actually said that? <laughs> you know, I think that's a rite of passage, isn't it? You've got you to gotta have a few of those. Yeah. I look back at the very first uh, JBM website and I, I die inside. But <laughs> these things do happen and it's all part of the journey. Isn't exactly, it? exactly. Yeah. So, you know, uh, but that being said, I, I, I'm incredibly grateful for what we've been able to achieve as a company. You're right to say that we've raised an astonishing amount of money and, and I don't take that lightly. I, I don't want to come off as, as, as if I'm, I'm, I'm obnoxious to that. I'm not. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for us being able to raise that amount of capital to invest aggressively and to grow the business. Uh, and, and I'm fully aware that most companies don't get to, to be able to do that. So, so I'm, I'm deeply grateful that we're a business that's been able to do that. Great stuff. Well, and, and you should be incredibly proud of what you've achieved. And I'm excited to see what the future holds. So, I mean, briefly, Ham, what, what are the future plans? What, what what does the next three to five years look like for you guys? We have a lot of exciting stuff in the works right now. And I'm actually just thinking about what can I say right now, because some of the stuff we haven't announced yet, but I guess by the time this airs, we'll have announced some of those things. We're launching a number of exciting products across our our markets, you know, I've mentioned this before, so this is not new. You know, products like crypto, products like cards we're doing with our with our partner Visa. We're launching a stocks product so people can buy US stocks across the world. I think what's also exciting is we're launching in some really new markets that 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 are gonna be massive growth levels for our business. One of those obviously is the UK, which we'll be ramping up quite aggressively in. And then also in the US. We're gonna be launching in the US. Uh, and by the time this airs, we probably will have announced the U.S. launch. So that's that's a massive launch that we've been working very hard towards. And a lot of our users in Africa have been requesting for. So being able to support that corridor, which is probably the biggest reptiles corridor with Africa, is, is going to be very important and very exciting. So, you know, that's just a few of the things. The other things I probably will sort of keep my mouth shut because... They're probably uh, uh, we have we have plans to to announce those in, in very interesting ways that I don't want to. Okay, what's this face, listeners? Yeah, well, I, I feel still feel we got a bit of a scoop there, so uh, I'll 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 be grateful for that. And thank you, Ham. Well, we're sadly at the end here, but we've got a few wrap up questions, quick fire wrap up questions that uh, we always like to ask. Do you have a mentor, and if so, how have they helped your journey? Yes. 
It's interesting. I, I, I do have people that I've relied on as mentors and still do. I talked about, you know, when I was in Grinnell, uh, major in many ways played that role. And then when I, so even through my journey at Grinnell until today, uh, Mark, our chief legal officer, has been a mentor of mine from the time I was in Grinnell. And now the fact that he works with me is, is a bit more exciting. And, you know, obviously my parents who've been incredible uh, advisors and guided me along the way. Obviously those are sort of, you know, natural mentors. Uh, sometimes they're easy to overlook, but they've been instrumental to me uh, in my own professional and personal journey. So yeah, I, I, I'd probably call out those three and four people as people who have deeply and I still continue to rely on and whose counsel I take very seriously and that I trust uh, uh, entirely. And if there was one person in the world that you could be mentored by, who would that be? Nelson Mandela. Oh, great, great answer. Uh, do you want? I mean, it, it, it's probably a pretty obvious one as to why, but do you want to just expand on that? Yeah, it's it's both obvious and not obvious because everyone knows who he is, and I think people will be like, "Oh, yeah, that's a cliche answer." But then also because the more you read about his story, and sort of the more you understand the things he went through from the time he was very young all the way to he became uh, a formidable and prominent anti-apartheid leader. The elements of leadership and leadership in difficult situations, you know, how do you craft a message that is both firm, but also non sort of threatening or that doesn't posture you for just, you know, a head on collusion of violence because, you know, you have to sort of appeal to several stakeholders. You have to appeal to the people who you're leading. You have to appeal to, obviously, the apartheid government that you're going against. You have to appeal to the international community that you want their support for. And you have to be clear with all those people. You know, how do you take, you know, people who are very angry and channel that passion to be constructive as opposed to distractive? Uh, how do you, you know, heal a country that's been deeply, deeply, deeply divided in ways that some people might think could never be healed? You know, how do you how do you heal that country? How do you sort of prioritize forgiveness instead of the natural response of revenge or tit for tat? There's so many questions around how someone in that capacity can balance all the things that he balanced and at the same time maintain his sanity. We talked in this podcast about how, you know, overwhelming pressures can affect someone's mental health. You know, like talk about mental health, you know, with that guy. How is that something that he, right, you know, not just, you know, at a macro level, but even with his own family, right? How does he handle all those those different sort of dynamics? That's, you know, I, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall, you know, in some of his strategic discussions with his friends and partners and other leaders of the movement and eventually as he sort of run the country and, and beyond. But I think there's very many lessons that all of us can sort of apply to our own lives, whether it's in your job or your know, company you're running or whatever you're doing, or even in a relationship that I think would be very important for all of us. So, so he's an easy one in the sense that I think he sort of encompasses a number of things very, very well, a number of very important things very well. Definitely. What a great answer. Thank you, Ham. And given all the success you've had, how do you want to be remembered at the end of your career? You know, that's a, it's a very interesting question because I guess at a certain level, everyone wants to be remembered fondly. And, you know, you hope that, you know, you are remembered as someone who wasn't bad or that someone, you know, 
that most people didn't look at negatively and that you have sort of had a net positive impact on society. But I think the most important way that I would want to be remembered is by the people who matter the most to me, which is my, my family and the people I love. And that's often, even I've also made this mistake, you know, that's, that's often a group that we uh, take for granted because we always assume they'll be there and, you know, we can always count on them. And in, in, in the quest for, you know, greater victories and successes and, you know, all the things that we chase in our lives, we sometimes ignore that, uh, that core group. So I think as I've, in my own journey, as I've sort of grown as a, as a human being and, and learned lessons in different scenarios, uh, I've sort of come back to appreciate my family, my closest friends, people I've loved that much more. And I think if I want to be remembered, it'll be by those people above all, and obviously remembered well by them. But, you know, I don't want to sound somber. <laughs> No, no, no. I think as as a family man myself, you know, that's that's a it's a great it's a great answer and uh, I think a really important one. So, final question for any listeners thinking about stepping into the scale up world, perhaps as a founder, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? I'd say go for it. There's no better time than now. I think one thing that uh we majorly I sort of used to keep ourselves checked on was when is the right time for us to leave our jobs and dive head on into Chipper? And the answer we sort of came to eventually was that let's just do it now. You know, like, fuck it. You know, oh, sorry, I don't know if I'm supposed to talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can swear. That's fine. It's an adult show. Uh, <laughs> anyway, like, just, just do it. And I think uh, there's a very powerful aspect of that mentality, which is there is never a perfect time to do anything. The perfect time is now. And it doesn't have to be with a startup. It could be with, you know, uh, an opportunity you've been trying to go after or, you know, someone you've been trying to ask on a date forever and <laughs> you've just not been able to, you know, to drum up the courage and you're waiting for, oh, when I'm, you know, in a better place in my life or in a better place in my job. And you sort of miss, you know, the now, you know, that fatal hesitation uh, is very dangerous and that applies to startups as well. So I think my sort of, just general piece of advice would be, you know, if there's something you want to do, just go ahead and do it. You know, you will never be, you know, as excited about it as you are now. I think also, you know, from a practical perspective, you will never be as young as you are now. And, and, and you know, being able to give yourself the flexibility to pursue something over a long period of time, it's better to start now than, you know, wait another two, three, five, ten years to do it. So, yeah, that's what I'd say. What a brilliant place to end this ham thank you so much for being such a fantastic 40 minute mentor really enjoyed our conversation and i know our listeners will have done too so thank you so much james thanks for having me this was a, a lot of fun i can't believe it's been an hour already so i know i, I know it's flown by <laughs> cheers ham thank you i really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 minute mentor and if you did please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk thanks again for all your support